we've gotten ourselves in a state in this country. There's so much that we actually implicitly as citizens are consenting mm -hmm. to. We are consenting to it. You know, when, when you, you know this, when you post your anger on Facebook, you are not doing anything, right? Welcome back to Miss Radio. This is your host, Gabe Sanders. You're about to hear my interview with Kent Glenzer. Kent is a professor in the Development Practice and Policy Program here at Miss, and he is a feral professional. We're going to learn what that term means to him and what it means to all of us as we graduate from Miss and head out into a world that is shaped by the structures of inequity, inequality, oppression that we have gotten to know through our coursework here in the DPP program. We talk about the consequences of implicit or unconscious or totally conscious consent to these power structures. And we also talked about what it would mean to stop consenting, where to aim at these structures to begin changing them. And we also talked about Kent's taste in music, the stuff that's bumping through his headphones, the stuff that we hear before class when we walk in, and why it moves him. I'm someone who's moved a lot by the music that I listen to, and I want to know what music means to him. I think you really enjoy getting to know Kent Glenzer a little bit better, so without further ado, here he is. I'm going to read you a quote. It's going to sound familiar. What the world doesn't need is more competent, obedient, rule-following technocrats. What it does need is feral professionals who can transform systems and reconfigure long-standing relationships of power. So I want to know what you mean by a feral professional. So, you know, this whole idea of a feral professional um, came from near the end of my previous career when I was uh, working in international development, largely with NGOs, the Oxfams and the Cares of the World. And the very last job I had for four years um, was with Oxfam. And um, over the course of those four years, I um, had the opportunity to hire uh, probably, I don't know, six or seven uh, new Oxfam uh, employees and all of the six or seven were of that that ilk of um, coming just out of grad school. It was those kinds of hires. Um, kind of like us. Yeah, I mean it's not entry level, but it's entry level in terms of a professional career. You know, mm. so um, but uh, people who needed a master's degree um, and uh, we were bringing them into Oxfam and uh, when we bring them into Oxfam, um, we do hope that they spend 10 or 15 years with us um, and so it became near the end of that period um, I had this sort of moment of stepping back as, and, and saying to myself so who am I hiring who have I hired where have I hired them from what kinds of young people late 20s coming out of the master's programs am I hiring and I realized that there was a pattern and there's a pattern was that I was not hiring people coming out of American graduate schools. Hmm. I was hiring people coming out of European graduate schools. Almost, I mean, like five out of six. If it were six, don't quote me on the number. Right. But like 
five out of six are coming from European graduate schools. Um, and, uh, and maybe one out of the six was like from India, coming out of an Indian graduate school or something like that. Um, again, I'm not being precise and exact here, but it was that kind of a realization of, well, so what the heck is going on? What, why am I not hired? What's, what is it? And, you know, I'm in, I'm in Boston, so I'm, I'm interviewing, you know, students like, not that these are necessarily the best students, but I am interviewing students that are out of MIT and they're out of Harvard, and I'm like, I don't want these people. I'm hiring this person from IDS that doesn't have half their background, Institute for Development Studies. Hmm. And, I, and I realized at that time it was because, um, and, and having experience, it wasn't just the hiring process, it was also interns, you know, we'd get interns in, and how, how were they? And I found, and this is a horrible generalization, um, and, and subject to all of the, the pitfalls of any generalization, I realize. Um, but I found that largely the students that were coming out of American institutions were armed with best practice. Mm. They were armed with the right answer. They were armed with knowing how to do specific things, really well armed. I mean, no, they knew how to do a regression analysis, goddammit. And when to do it and why to do it. Glad somebody does. And and what they were poor at was inventing new kinds of practices that no one had told them were good. Hmm. They almost, they almost, of course, you know, again, I'm, I'm thinking back now eight years to my memory and all this kind of stuff, and you want to betray, your memory betrays you all the time, so. But it was almost as if they were timid and afraid of thinking on their own. And the, the folks where I was hiring from um, w were not at all timid and afraid to think on their own. If they made a mistake, it was they probably didn't read their master's degree books as well as they should have. Okay. So the, their grasp of maybe theory and... Or hardcore facts. Hardcore facts. Okay. But their, their ability to get into a situation and go, holy crow, we need... There is there, there's no compass here. There's no roadmap here. There's I can't go back and find Beryl's wonderful tool to tell me how to do this. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah. there isn't a tool. There's no roadmap. You're you're navigating in uncharted waters. And again, that's a huge metaphor. But that's that's when I first said to myself, "Geez, um, uh, uh, quite honestly, maybe that uh, that's the first time I said to myself, maybe I need to change my career. I mean, if if and this is apocryphal, but if, if American higher education as it relates to international development is so broken, which of course it's not, um, <laughs> may, maybe, maybe, maybe um, I need to figure out going to a place where I can create a new, or participate, be part of creating um, a, a new kind of um, prof graduate professional, right? And, um, you know, I'd, I'd had two opportunities, um, I got my PhD in 2005, and mm. I had two tenure-track offers that I turned down, and rather went and worked with the Oxfam's and the Cares of mm -hmm. the World. I didn't think I wanted to be an academia, an academic. It wasn't my purpose for getting a PhD. PhD was the midlife crisis. Um, and um, I thought to myself, well, maybe maybe this is really what I should be trying to do. And then this place, the institute, uh, called me. I wasn't looking for a job, and they called me and said, "We have a 
position out here. It has one foot in the business program. It has one foot in the public policy school. Um, would you would you apply for it? Um, and I always say to students, you know, and, and to young professionals, if someone asks you to apply for a job, apply for the job. What I mean, do you have to lose? And then turn it down if they offer it if you don't want it. But I mean, apply for the job. If someone yeah. says, would you apply for this job? I mean, all things being equal. And so I did and came out here. And, um, you know, quite honestly, I, I spent three days in 2011 early 2011 out here and um, I was I did I'd never even heard of this place before mm. I, I had no idea I had no idea this place existed it just wasn't in my circles over 28 years it just wasn't in my circles and um, as much as there is you know grads all over the world in international development which just wasn't on my radar screen for whatever reason and I, I was stunned by this place in terms of the approach to education here, what people were trying to do. Um, and of course it was talk. I mean, I wasn't observing anything. Mm -hmm. But the whole ethos here and what they're trying to do just resonated so strongly with me. I just, you know, said to myself, this this feels like an opportunity, you know. One of those things that comes up in your life and you weren't looking for it. And it's like, uh, maybe it's time to... So I did, and, and that's where the feral professional thing came. It's like I, 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 had, I had to come up with some language for myself. Um, it was only for myself at the time. Of, so what's the difference here? What's the difference here? What am I, what's the distinction here? What's, what, what is it that I'm not liking about so many young professionals coming out of American graduate schools? They come out of every graduate school everywhere in the world, so um, it's not just America. But, um, and that's when I, you know, I came across that that phrase, they're obedient, they're, they're obedient, they're so competently obedient. Mm. They're so competent, they are so well-schooled. But where are the outlaws? But, yeah, I mean, I didn't even have that language. Uh, yeah. You know, that language of outlaws, I learned when I came out here and started right. teaching the MBA program, it's like, oh, I need to get, increase my chops about the MBA language. Um, but yeah, and so, I, so, so I, I knew that, I knew that obedience was a real thing for me. Uh, that's, that's what I didn't like. I didn't like that obedient thing. Um, and, uh, and then I was just, it was in a conversation with, quite frankly, with Alfredo Ortiz. We were talking about this <laughs> okay. exact same thing. We were talking about this, talking about this and talking about this, and it was just over a few beers where, I, you know, suddenly out of my mouth came, I don't know, I want feral professionals. And so like <laughs> Alfredo was like, that's brilliant. <laughs> I can hear that. I, I'm taking his class right now, systems thinking, and yeah. And, and so that's that's where that came that's where it came from and then it it has taken on a bit of a life here you will hear some professors a number of professors here use that language of feral professionals and Alfredo and I have have Alfredo and I kept have kept over the years um, thinking that we should write a paper or something about this but anyways yeah that's where it came from okay. and I you know so that, that underlying idea um, I think is just profoundly important and I think it's I, I, and I think it's really scary for a, someone in their mid-twenties to their early thirties at the start of their career. I think it's actually really scary um, to go out there. Um, scary is the wrong word. I, I'll just say it's really hard. It's really, really hard to go out there and, and break molds mm. when yeah. you're working with people who expect you to be kind of obedient. I mean, I've always had trouble with that myself. 
Yeah. I'm not good at working for people, mm-hmm. under people, but it kind of, there's a phrase that's resonated in my head. Do, there's a, some literature that I've read over the years that characterizes certain mindsets and certain people as in the world, but not of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what being feral is. You, you only become feral when somebody observes you in their world and knows you don't belong. Um, it's a really relative measure. But you belong perfectly to where you come from, but then obviously you find yourself in a new world. And I, I'm going to find myself when I graduate in a world that is full of people trying to kind of maintain the status quo. Um, but I, I was going to ask this question a little later, but now it makes more sense to ask sooner. I've been wondering a lot about democracy. And, you know, in our organizational behavior studies in our class, we talk about all these different ways that organizations behave and different ways of taking consensus or taking votes. Very rarely is it pure democracy. And I, I just wonder, all these systems that are in place that do not represent democratic processes, they are what make up our country. They are what make up our world. I don't I, for I, I can't expect that to be to to see in our government a reflection of anything but that mm. a lack of true democracy mm. so does it take a feral presence to start breaking that mold to start breaking the status quo which is becoming more and more painfully obviously tilted against what we believe true democracy to be do you think it needs feral professionals um, in America or otherwise? Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a that, there's so many parts to that yeah. question. Um, you can try to break it down. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about how to how to kind of block and tackle that. It's a great it's a it's a great question. There's there, so there's no doubt whatsoever. There's just no doubt whatsoever that we've got ourselves into a place in this country as it relates to democracy. I mean, talking about democracy, that big D big democracy, democracy yeah. that, that, that thing. We, we've, we've got ourselves into a place of, you know, um, <clears throat> so I'm teaching, a, I'm doing another class right now, Power, Social Change and Organization, mm-hmm. um, completely different from the organizational behavior class. Um, one of the central sort of tropes or themes in that in that class is is, is hegemony, mm-hmm. right? particularly from the perspective of cultural hegemony, not political science hegemony, one state versus another state, but cultural hegemony as it's related to the Frankfurt School, neo-Marxist, blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> but, but but the fascinating thing about hegemony and why I'm bringing it up in this is. We've, there's something about what we've there, you know hegemony according to the neo-Marxists works through consent. I mean, the, the power blocks, hegemonic blocks in any society or any community, any group, whether you, you know, the nest, nest, put it here at Ms. it's a group, there's a hegemony, there's a hegemonic mm-hmm. formation of a block here that works, it, 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 there's, there's something in charge, right? And I put it that way because, in point of fact, the, 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 the idea of hegemony is we actually all consent to it. Even if we're inside of Ms. right, the Institute, and we hate something about it, um, maybe we say something about it, but most of us don't leave. You know, most of us consent to some of the bullshit that mm. uh, you know about. And it's any organization. I don't mean to criticize Ms. Right. So there's a lot of like how 
institutional organizational power works and, and, and national power that is through hegemony and it's through consent. We, we all agree to do certain things or we agree not to question certain things. And there's a part of hegemony which is false consciousness, but I'm not talking about that. We've gotten ourselves in a state in this country. There's so much that we actually implicitly as citizens are consenting mm -hmm. to. We are consenting to it. You know, when, when you, you know this, when you post your anger on Facebook, you are not doing anything, no. right? You're, you're actually, if, if, if as an individual you are doing your part by venting on Twitter or Facebook, you are actually consenting to the very things that you think that you're combating, right? Absolutely. You really are. You're... <clears throat> The, the dominant hegemonic block, and again, it's not a person, it's not a single, it's, it's, it's a social group, it's a very wide social group. I mean, to anthropo, I mean, and you can't actually give them um, agency because they're not doing anything together, but I'm gonna use this language, they love it. They love you venting on Facebook, you know? The, the folks who love to have Kavanaugh on the uh, Supreme Court, they actually love, oh, yeah. they love the street protests. They love the Twitter stuff because it's, it's, it's like a pressure cookie. You vent, you vent, you vent, you vent. And at the end of the day, we've all consented to Brian Kavanaugh being on our mm -hmm. Supreme Court. And we have. We have all consented to it, even though someone can say, no, what, I protested every day. What would the opposite <laughs> of consent look like in this case? Well, that's, um, I, it's, it's, um, I mean, if it's not protesting in the streets. Well, it's, 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 it is protesting in the streets. You mean on a larger scale? It, it, and it's persistent. It's persistent. Consistent, and you can't, you can't stop doing it. You well, know? I have to finish grad school. How am I going to uh, yeah, well, protest in the streets? You've got to, you've got to, you've got to pick and choose your battles at the time Fair there, so that, 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 that it's right to do. But there is something really important about this, you know, in terms of the kind of, of dissent that we have in this country and elsewhere, what we know, and it's really hard for each generation to learn this. It's so hard. The intergener, the generational learning is so difficult that, you know, I always use my mom. Sorry, I always That's go back okay. to my mom and use my mom as the example. You know, in 1974, and I may tear up. Mm -hmm. In 1974, my mom had an abortion, and. Roe v. Wade had just been passed. Mm -hmm. She had a legal abortion in 1974. It saved her life. Mm -hmm. If it was two years prior to that, she would have had an abortion, and I don't know how it would have happened. But I was 14 years old, and I knew exactly what was going on. And when I was 14, again, very naive, very naive. When I was 14, I looked at that and I said, holy crap, we figured this, ge this gender injustice thing out. My mom can have an abortion. Hmm. She has control over her own body. Oh my God, I'm living, I literally, I was 14 and thought this, that I am living in a golden age where women's bodies are not controlled by men. Did that feel like democracy? Uh, something like it. felt very much like a form of democracy to me. I, wouldn't yeah. have, I actually wouldn't have put it in those terms. Right. It was more... Holy crow, I'm living in this golden age. And I'm 14, 1974, and I'm just coming out of the civil rights era, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking, oh, my God, and we solve racism. <laughs> I'm 14. Right. I actually thought this way. Yeah. I thought that we had solved this well, shit. I can't hold it against you. It's and and then as the, you know, as the years have gone by, I have seen, you know, that that kind of fervent 
action, widespread action that led to the civil rights movement. First off, I learned that the, those movements existed back in the 1800s and we forgot about them. Um, and then I learned that there was a civil rights, women's rights movement back in the 1800s and we forgot about them and no one taught me about that. And, and, and then I realized that there are these waves where these come and go and then you get these little gains and then they get taken away. And it's like, well, crap. So this thing, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, and so here we are in 2018 and um, there's nothing less that I would ever say than the women have control over their own bodies in this country. I think, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying we've regressed. I'm, I, I'm not sure we've regressed, but I will say that we, we um, take our eye off the ball and we stop the kind of persistent, consistent, day-by-day furor that's actually needed to make these kinds of changes. Mm -hmm. One can say because nobody can handle that. No one can maintain that kind of thing. You can only do that in fits and starts. I think that's part of the problem. I, I think that, that, again, I would just... I know I, sound, I, I, I know I sound like I have a conspiracy theory, but I, I would say the dominant hegemonic block in this country loves that. They love the fact that, you know what, for a few years, these folks are going to go out in the streets and they're going to protest. But you know what? At the end of the day, they're going to get tired. And we're already controlling most of the institutions that make important decisions mm -hmm. about resources and laws and stuff like that. So what the hell? So I do think that, you know, whether, so I'm going back to your question, whether no, feral okay. professionals are, is what's needed, I wouldn't necessarily, I guess I'm not necessarily comfortable like throwing that word at everything, so right. to speak. I know you weren't doing that. Um, but there is something about, um, you know, there's something about a feral life, about, about you, you just, you, these, these, these things are not going to change on their own, and they're not going to change because you won one little victory. I mean, to call Roe v. Wade one little victory, I'm, that's, that breaks my heart to call it that, but that's what it was. It was one little victory, you know? And we're only now learning just how vulnerable that victory yeah. is. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I believe, so, so look, back in the 60s, so here's a book that I'm reading right now. Direct Action. This is a history of, of, of civil rights action in the mm -hmm. United States. The, go, go, this this L.A. Kaufman goes back um, to the 1800s. And, L, and Kaufman's purpose in writing this book, which came out, I think, last year, maybe two years ago, I can't remember exactly. Uh, Kaufman's purpose in writing the book is there's so much amnesia in this country about direct action, civil rights, advocacy, getting on the streets, what it accomplishes, what it doesn't accomplish. Is it amnesia for the whole country or just certain parts of the country, certain demographics, say white cis males who are still the ruling power hegemonic presence. That's a great, um, it's certainly true for, the, for that, 100% true and, and the amnesia in that social group um, may be willful for a lot of yeah. members. Well, because of it. it's in our interest. And, and it may be unwillful for other members of that mm -hmm. group, right? Yeah. I mean, just literally through consent and not realizing they're consenting to certain Yeah, it's ways not necessarily it. malicious. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's certainly true. But Kaufman, I, 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 Kaufman is making the argument that people who are activists forget this stuff. That, that activists themselves forget that 
um, actions in the past have been taken, how they've been taken, what they've accomplished, and why they've accomplished, and it gets forgotten. And each and Kaufman is saying each new generation of activists acts as if they're inventing it for the first time. Mm. And there's something profoundly wrong with that. And Kaufman would say, you know, this, this amnesia is programmed into the system. I mean, you don't learn it in school. I mean, so who controls educational curricula? What do you Texas. learn in kindergarten? What do you learn in first grade? What do you learn in second grade? What do you learn in third grade? Where, where do those, why don't you learn anywhere in school? Most, not, I mean, you'd have to go to an interesting undergraduate degree to learn about this kind of stuff. You'd I mean, have to do the same to learn what Columbus Day really means. Right. You know, we just had that Monday. Correct. More and more people call it Native People's Day or something like that. But that's still not in our schools. Right. As far as I'm aware. No, exactly. And so this is what, and, and so Kaufman is saying it's activists that have this amnesia. And <clears throat> Kaufman is saying it's, it's not their fault. They're not bad people or stupid mm -hmm. people or they can't read. That's not, it is literally excluded from the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I use the word culture in this <laughs> sense, I actually mean it as a block of pol politics, economics, resources, social, yeah. you know, that's, and, 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 and you've got to aggressively confront that and find that. And so, you know, that, that I, I do believe that's true, Gabe. I do believe that's true. Um, and, uh, and so I think y you, you've, you can't rely on heroic individuals. Right, the one person who rises yeah. up and understands all this stuff, and then yeah. suddenly makes everything clear for everybody else—that's a dead end. It's a dead end. We've had those people. It's a dead. They end, end up either crucified or crucifying themselves. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Literally, sometimes. Or creating really weird dependency on them. Sure. You yeah. Know? And um, so there's something very, very structural about this, uh, and and so so. So feral professionals, yeah, absolutely. But you, but you need these people um, going out and, and, and really thinking structurally, right? Um, and historically. It's so hard to think historically. So if you wanted to change a structure, let's say, I mean, <laughs> there are so many, yeah. in, like overlaid in our country, in our world, where do you aim first? If you had to pick one place, obviously That's there are- That's a great question. Where do, I mean, this, this is you, you as a professional. Where do you aim? Through your classes? Through, you know, the way you administrated before? Where did you aim? So this is really interesting. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, if you, if you uh, get on the Ms. website, at least I think it transferred to the new web website. But many years ago, four, four years ago, I think it was, the, um, did you know Arena McWilliams? I don't or think did so. You, did you, she used to work at... Um, the um, Center for Impact Learning was that. Anyways, I'm I'm not familiar. Okay. Sorry, so with, you must have come the year after we shut that yeah, down. Yeah, started in 2017. And in four years ago, Arena got was got her entry level job here, and one of the things she was assigned was to do some creative videos with professors. Um, and she was doing this, you know, the the, um, the the animation stuff, you know, a narrated an animated narrated. Um, Interesting. It was really cool. Yeah. She was really good at it. It was really fun. Um, but anyway, so she asked me to sit down and she said, so here, I'm asking professors and I'm going to animate it and we're going to put it up like 90 seconds. If you could change one thing <laughs> in the world, 
that's the only cue if you could change one thing. And uh, and I think it's still on the Miz website if you if you Google I'll it. I'll check it out. Because um, we did it, and it was the only one that was done. Um, she didn't go on and do it with anybody else. Um, but what I said there, it's a related to your question. Sure. And um, it isn't a full answer to your question, but it, there's something interesting in what I said, because it was from my previous world of working in international uh, development and the short-termism that you find mm. in international development and the short-termism in international development is is deeply tied to power and politics. And, and, um, and, and so... Um, I, my response to her, if you could change one thing in the world, is I, I said, well, if I could change one thing in the world, I would change people's perspectives on the time horizon for success. And that sounds really, I actually said it more succinctly than that. No, I see what you're saying. Though. But, but I said, you know, if I could go into Wall Street and I could get Wall Street to stop doing goddamn quarterly reports on anybody, which is worthless, or if I could get every newspaper, radio, Magazine, magazine and television. If I can get them to stop reporting what Wall Street does every day, and get them to only report on Wall Street once a year, if I could get to every NGO and every philanthropy and every international donor, bilateral and multilateral, and say, stop doing three-year projects and thinking that you can do anything with them. Stop it, and change your time horizon to 10 years no matter what you do have and, and get real indicators for it. Stop this. Mm. If I could do one thing that would change so much about the world that sounds technical, because it is, it just sounds it like is. a technical fix, right? It's like, that's just a technical fix, changing people's time horizons. No, man, if you can if you can get them just to agree to that, all these people, it would change so much behind the scenes in terms of how we operate yeah. in this world, what we value, how we value it, who's included, who's not included. Um, that was my response then, and I still think that it's not a bad response. I agree. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the challenges facing us now, which aren't a whole lot different than they were when you did that. Yeah, four years ago. We, the only thing is we have more information about just how soon we're going to be totally screwed by climate change. Yeah, the last week we've got that. Yeah, right? exactly. And that's... I don't know what more people need. I don't. If the people who aren't convinced yet, I have a feeling won't be convinced till the ocean is at their doorstep. Yeah, quite literally. Yeah. Um, so, you worked in civil society in yeah. Western China. Yeah. So, speaking from of, a distance. From a distance. Was, I okay. wasn't that's physically. But though. you had a perspective on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, in Xinjiang province right now, Uyghur Muslims are being re-educated. They're being uh, oppressed, suppressed, robbed of any rights they may have had before as humans. Um, there's this new social credit system in China which exists to create trust uh, because they didn't have a real credit system as we have, as other developed nations might have. But this one is reliant upon your behavior as much as it is your financial behavior, your day-to-day. -day. So I want to know what, if any, you know, what your thoughts are on what's happening in China and what makes them uniquely sort of vulnerable to this kind of completely anti-democratic rule. Um, <clears throat> Where's the vulnerability? Yeah, isn't that, that's sort of, isn't that the, isn't that the most 
important question about what's going on in China right now. Yeah, there are a number, um, <laughs> but that's I mean this, that's this, a big one. No, but this this you're not making an assumption. I mean, you're asking a question. I mean, you're you're really saying so. Is China vulnerable? Right. I mean, is is there a vulnerability there? I mean, um, liberal democratic theory would lead us, you know, to the conclusion that they are deeply vulnerable because at the end of the day, you know. You can't have this kind of state control of this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so that line would say, well, clearly they're vulnerable for, the, for theoretical reasons. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sanguine about that line of reasoning. But again, I, I really do want to stress here, I do not consider myself a China sure. expert. I don't, I've not studied China <clears throat> like from an academic perspective. I've consulted there and so on and so forth. But yeah civil society, so I don't want to pass myself off. Well, it's more off. than I can say, so. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to pass myself off at Fair all enough. as a China expert. But, but I will say that from, you know, I, um, f from the perspective of forms of democracy and nation states and, and forms of exclusion and inclusion inside of nation states, broad, broad, broadly speaking, um, I'm, um, I, I think I'm, um, I'm agnostic. This is the best way to put it. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm agnostic about whether China is vulnerable or not in terms of can, if the time horizon is a hundred years, mm. If the time horizon is, can, can China's government keep doing what it's doing to its people? With their consent. Explicit, implicit, tacit, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. If, if the time horizon is 100 years and you ask me, is it possible that China can keep doing this for 100 years without, and even maybe even do it stronger? And is that possible? I would say, I don't see why that's not possible. Hmm. What makes it, what, what, what makes you think that it's something that can be tolerated? Is it the growth that, the China, that China's experiencing? I or? do think that there is um, a great, great deal of benefit to a really large swath of that population. Yeah. It doesn't mean people aren't excluded. It, uh, that is uh, unprecedented in world history. Um, in the past 20, 20 years, yeah. and the what that has done for a lot of people. Well, they're so the, just the sheer them, scale of it, the raised standards of living for so many billions exactly. of people, and and th that's a lot of people who probably, again, I'm speculating. Yeah, that's, that's a okay. lot of people who, if you ask them to be allies. To people that they know are getting jailed and murdered, and it's 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 a big step for to get much of a coalition. I would argue from those people, and I um I don't know. I'm 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 I am not at all, as I said, unconvinced that China can't keep doing this for quite a long time. Uh, uh, <laughs> I wasn't looking for an encouraging or inspiring answer from that, and I, but when you say that, it makes me think, what, what, makes, what would make anybody look at the U.S. right now and think anything different?
Um, and I, I don't mean that just rhetorically. What would make you think differently about the U.S. in that context? When, when you, so let me just be clear. When you say that, are you, are you saying that, that Trump's America can continue for 100 years? Well, Is that what you mean? not necessarily Trump's, but just this state of consent. Is it sustainable for either the voting population or non-voting population, just the people who are not in the ruling class? and the people who are in the ruling class, do you see this being 100 years sustainable? Um, the status quo. I think that... Um, I, uh, I, I think that incrementalism in different directions... Hmm. When I say in different directions, incrementalism in a way that points towards Trump's America and incrementalism that points towards FDR's America. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I use those two quite distinctly, actually, uh, yeah, as opposed rightfully to, so, I'd say. to yeah. Trump versus Bill Clinton, because there's actually a lot about power and privilege yeah. that is distinctly the same between Bill Clinton yes. and Donald Trump, quite frankly. Yes, unfortunately. Right? This... This, this coalition that's actually come together between, it's the wrong word, but how, how similar Democrats and Republicans are mm -hmm. these days for the most part. It makes whataboutism very easy. Is deeply disturbing, right? Deeply disturbing. Um, and in point of fact, in a really strange way, the similarities between Democrats, Jason Scorsese is going to hate this, <laughs> the similarities between Democrats and, and Republicans, quite frankly, um, actually, I would argue, is one of the reasons why you have this gridlock in mm -hmm. inside of Congress because when there's so much that's similar, you get stuck on the most minute of differences. And I know there's more than minute differences going on. Right. I'm s trying to speak at a macro level. That's okay. So, anyways, the the I I I do believe up to right now, and I still believe under the what's going on with Trump. Um, that this country, despite all of its really, really terrible flaws, does have a um, an incrementalist history. In other words, of progress that can be made through ongoing compromises with the dominant hegemony. Um, that and, and that can continue, I believe, and that can continue to make incremental improvements in a variety of different things. Again, we 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 could sort of we could flip the telescope on the other end and look at the other other side of the scope and say, you know, is tw what, what's, what's, what's good about the United States in 2018 that was not good in, in 1918? And so that you, you can see different forms of, of, of really important social uh, improvement. The thing that I think is the most important question on this is, and I, I'm going to get rather materialist and Marxist about this, Please. I, I, I think what I don't know the, 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 the big question mark for me that we can only speculate upon yeah. it's the black swan kind of thing is this is is is, re, is hardcore resources and and ability to to live a decent life it's going to get harder and harder and 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 if if if, if that continues to, to plummet in the way that it has in the last 30 years and I'm talking about social safety nets I'm talking about living in a dignified life, even if you're in the lower middle class. 
and then beyond living a dignified life, because you can convince yourself you're living a dignified mm-hmm. life, even if you're not. That's part of hegemony. Mm. Um, but getting to a point where you literally can't afford, you know, the medicine you need or something yeah. like that, that, it, can that happen in this country? I do believe it it's can already happen. happening. It is. It's been you're happening. Right. You're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. It's, yeah. It is already happening, and it's, and it's widely unknown. Right. It, by, I mean, if you're not studying policy and listening to podcasts all the time, it's widely unknown, that's for sure. It's crawling into, more than crawling into, the quote-unquote class that that um, we might say we'll get up in arms and do something about the middle class, whatever, you know, when, when, when you've got a... When you've got a professor at Ms. who's making $90,000, you know, and can't afford um, shopping every week because of what, everything else that they're doing, um, you know, that yeah. you, you would hope that at that stage things reach a, um, a point where Critical. the social pressure, you know, and the protests would rise up to such an extent that, but um, but that's that's the question mark that I have about it. I. I I try to, can you define that question real in a concise way? Um, the question mark for me is about the very, very bare bones, pragmatic, materialistic thing about uh, do I have the resources to live a dignified life? Hmm. Can I afford a, a roof over my head? Can I afford decent medical care? At what point does the dis, the, the division that is pre- you're absolutely right, Gabe, to bring to to to, to you know correct me about the fact that. In many ways, objectively, there are, there, are, there are tens of millions of people in this country oh, yeah. that, are, that are beyond that point, yeah. where they can't actually. They're making choices every day about putting a bowl of cereal in front of their kid or buying their diabetes medicine. You're yeah. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, the question mark for me is, um, it, it, is that going to expand to a point where eventually it is so many of us, the percentage is so high, um, that you do reach a, a breaking point, an explosion point. I hear that. And, um, you know, we've had explosion points in this country. I mean, we've had the Civil War. It wasn't that long ago. It sounds like a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. And the idea Blink that we I. could have another explosion point um, is, is uh, I think most of us who are, uh, like me, you know, up, relatively upper class, middle class, white cis guy at this point, mm-hmm. most of us would say, that's never going to happen. We're, you know, we're, we're well beyond that. You know, if you read Why Nations Fail, which is one of the most important books of the 21st century, um, that looks across democratic governments, democratic states going back 2,000 years, a lot of people would say, that is a, there is no democratic states 2,000. There's been democra- democracy in forms of recognizable democracy. And you, you look at Why Nations Fail and you, and you see that really, really well-established institutionalized democracies can fail. Um, and it's documented, and it's historical, mm-hmm. and it's comparative, and they can get violent, and they can reach crisis points, even at well after the fact. Everyone thinks we've got this stuff settled and solved. That's the question that I have. I have it's a question of resources. It's like mm-hmm. it's this thing, Gabe, of at, are we going to reach a point where so many people can't afford to live a decent life, and we've cut the social safety net so yeah. much that you've got no choice? Or I mean... So that's the thing, and could, could we get there as a country? I absolutely believe. We oh, can of get course, there. absolute hundred percent, we could reach that point. Well, before I let you go, I mentioned something in our emails before this, and I, I want to follow through. I 
recently, especially, and in my 20s a lot, I find that I sometimes just need to put on my headphones mm. and lose myself in a beat or in, you know, a string instrument. Violins and cellos really get me. When I see you walking around on your way to campus or sitting in the library, what is, uh, what's going through your ears? Well, hold on a second. I mean, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you what my, please, my, uh, listening list is right now. Hold on a second. Yeah, it's always evolving. Um, I, I listen to, um, so my, the, the best way to sort of understand what goes through my ears is, uh, is my, my, my wife, who I've been married to for 32 years, <laughs> um, her, her favorite phrase about me is, um, this is taking too long to, to load. That's okay. My, her favorite phrase about me, and she says it with a smile on her face, is, when are you going to stop listening to students that 18-year-old boys and girls listen, stop listening to music that 18-year-old boys and girls listen to? You're 50. <laughs> Seven years old. Why are? And she's joking about it right. because, um, like she, like most people my age, are she's she lists. You know, if it was she was left up to her own devices, she listened to the stuff that she was listening to in the seventies and eighties, uh, and maybe in the nineties because I got her into grunge and she really liked grunge. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, I I become her feed every year for whatever new music that she listens to. Um, I, uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to, exp I don't know how to say it, Gabe, but I've, I, I tried to be a musician early in my career. It's my, it's my one passion. Okay. I, I, I always thought that I was going to be a rock and roll star. I, I say, and you, you've probably heard me say this in public here, when, when we have to introduce ourselves as, as faculty and say something about ourselves, I, I often use the line, um, hi, I'm Kent, I'm an associate professor here at the, at the Institute, and uh, my career goal is to be the lead guitarist for Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I, if, if I could be if I could be Greenwood and have that career, I would be so happy. Um, but um, so I listen. I, I listen to a lot of indie. I listen to a lot of college mm -hmm. indie stuff. Um, I listen to a lot of punk. I listen to a lot of post punk. Um, I uh, the last three years, um, eighty percent of what I listen to are female artists. They're the most creative thing out there in that in those genres mm -hmm. of indie punk, post punk. Um, I um, I'm pretty omnivorous though. I mean, I um, I always have a few female country artists on my my <laughs> my, my, my most recent playlist. I, I listen to a lot of hip hop um, these days. I never understood yeah. hip hop until twenty. I never listened to hip hop until 2013, and uh, and then there was a student here at the institute named Noah, um, who I'm still really good friends with. He works up in the Bay Area, and Noah knew my passion for music, and Noah grew up um, listening to hip hop, and he's like he he's like this hip hop archive. He he's like a hip hop historian, right? He knows everything about hip hop in the way that I can. I can listen to a band right now who's brand new, they're 19 years old, they're out of Portland, they're playing post-punk, and I can give you their lineage. I can say, okay, so they, they've, they've learned the guitar part from X band, yeah. Y I can take you, you can all the way, it. I can take you all the way back to television. And they've got the roots in television in 1974, they've listened to television in 1974, it's really, I can do that with those kinds, I can't, he's that way with hip hop, right? Okay. And so I never could understand hip hop because I didn't have a historical rooting in it, and, and it sounded so odd to my ears. I spent the 80s and 90s outside of this country, 
So I was listening to mostly African music, and I'd come back and suddenly there's this hip-hop, and I had no... And so Noah in 2013 sat me down, and, and he said, you love music so much. And I said, yeah. He said, you, you've got to love hip-hop. I said, I, I, I don't understand it. I can't hear it. I don't know what I'm listening to. And so in the last five years, Noah has been my distance uh, guru, my hip-hop guru, introducing me to the whole world of hip-hop, how it's rooted back into the 70s and early 80s. And so new bands come out and new artists come out, and I always text him and I say, Noah, this guy, you know, this guy chants the rapper out of Chicago. What, what, where does he come from? And Noah will say, well, look, here's what he's doing. He's drawing on so-and-so, drawing on so-and-so. It's like suddenly I can hear it then, right? And so I, I'm... I'm and in, I'm listening, a lot of the times when you see me on my headphones, I'm listening to Chicago hip-hop. I just, there's something about the Chicago hip-hop scene yeah. um, that um, really hits my ears profoundly. I don't know why. And then there's the Seattle hip-hop scene, which I call the, uh, I mean, not, not me only, but it's an art hip-hop scene. The, the, the hip-hop scene in Seattle is much more artsy, much more artsy-fartsy. Um, and uh, and that also really really appeals to me. Whereas the Atlanta scene right now, I don't understand it. Even as much as I try to listen to you know the trap music stuff, I do. Oh, I try okay. really hard. I, yeah. I keep listening. I'm listening to it right now on my playlist. Is Noah helping? And Is he uh, trying to help you? No, because he doesn't like it. He's not okay. He's not. Noah's not into it. He he thinks it's kind of just really random. I guess is the best word for it. Okay. Um, and uh, so yeah, so that's. That's you know so every year um, I uh, I've been doing this since 2011. Every year I put out my top hundred songs of the year and my top albums of the year. It's my big my big. When does deal. that come out? It comes out in uh, January. I'm going to keep my eyes out, and I think I've got a, an idea now for another podcast <laughs> because I'm sure you're not the only hip hop enthusiast here on campus. Well, I I'm a novice. I'm I'm a hip hop novice. I still, but um, it is. I have to say that I I, I think the most creative music. And I, when I say music, I don't mean lyrics and I don't mean songcraft. Mm -hmm. The most creative musical sounds being produced out there are coming out of the hip hop world. The most outrageously innovative, never heard before, yeah. blows my ears away. Like, how did you do that? How did you bring those two sounds together? Yeah. That makes no sense. And, it, and that you don't get that from country, you don't get it from um, indie, you don't get it from you know punk or post punk or mainstream or metal or I listen to a lot of metal too. No kidding. Um, Fucked up is one of my favorite bands. They're I've never even up. heard of them. They're, they're just they're this art metal band. Um, they tend to put out these elaborate story albums, you know, stuff that oh yeah stuff that we th that, that critics said stopped happening in the 1970s and should have stopped happening and never should have happened you know it's like this bam bam, bam you know this just just over the top operatic um and uh, they they came out of screamo uh, and, but now they're not doing screamo anymore it's really this amazing sort of fuzzy shoegaze metal it is really hypnotic but you gotta like metal well you yeah. convinced me to at least give it a try kent Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Thank you, Kent. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. If there's someone you'd like to hear from on Miss Radio, please let me know. My email is gbsanders at miss.edu. All right, that's it for now. Talk to you soon.